Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media, nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I'm an associate clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Alice Kongsted, but before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes really helps others find out about chiropractic science, so if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. I'd like to share a review on iTunes from someone with the nickname Sports Cairo Gabe from Australia, who says, love this podcast, fantastic to be able to listen to the best in chiropractic research, including the awesome host himself, Dr. Dean Smith. Keep up the great work. Well, thanks, Sports Cairo Gabe, for your review. I look forward to sharing your flattering iTunes review in a future podcast. Please consider making a contribution to chiropractic science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website by either making a contribution uh, or purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation. We're also on social media, including Facebook and Instagram, so please connect with us there. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Alice Kongsted. Alice Kongsted graduated from the University of Southern Denmark in 1999 and completed a PhD at the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Southern Denmark in 2005. Up until 2009, she had clinical work as a chiropractor alongside her academic work, mainly in an outpatient hospital department. Currently, she holds a position as senior researcher at the Nordic Institute of Chiropractic and Clinical Biomechanics, abbreviated NAKKB, and a position as associate professor at the Department of Sports Science and Clinical Biomechanics at the University of Southern Denmark. At NIKKB, she has set up a network of chiropractic primary care research clinics that regularly participates in data collection for research purposes, the data being made available to researchers both inside and outside of NIKKB. Her research interests current concern spinal pain with a focus on primary care. This includes investigating the prognosis of spinal pain and why people have different outcomes. Lately, she has been much occupied with a large project exploring ways to implement evidence-based care in practice. She has an interest in methodology and has taught PhD courses on prognostic research at University of Southern Denmark at Curtin University in Perth, Australia as well. Alice Kongstead is an associate editor of BMC Musculoskeletal Disorders, and she is a member of the editorial board for chiropractic and manual therapies. She has been involved in the Danish Health Authority's development of three national clinical guidelines for the treatment of lumbar radiculopathy, cervical radiculopathy, and nonspecific neck pain. She was part of the Lancet Low Back Pain Series Working Group that published three papers in March of 2018 to call for worldwide recognition of the disability associated with back pain and the need for prioritizing this globally growing problem. And this Lancet series will be a focus of our conversation today. 
Dr. Kongstead, it's a pleasure to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's really my pleasure. Great. Well, can you tell us how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor? Sure. Uh, as a child, I think seven, eight years old, I had a lot of headaches. Uh, and chiropractic treatment helped me with that. So that was really where it started. So later when deciding to study chiropractic, I think it was this personal experience and then combined with an interest in health science and natural science topics that are part of the curriculum. So um, that was what drew me towards chiropractic. And then I was simply so lucky that a program started at the University of Southern Denmark when I was that age, and I was in the first class to graduate from the Danish program here. Oh, that's terrific. I, I wonder uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about that program. Uh, yes, sure. It's, it's uh, integrated much with the medical school here at University of Southern Denmark. It's a five-year program where the bachelor part, the first three years, are strongly integrated with uh, medical students' uh, curriculum. And the last two years, the master program is more a separate program for the chiropractic students. So... Um, in that part, they do part of much, much of their clinical work, but also their uh, master thesis. Their clinical work is both in clinical practice and private chiropractic practice, but they also have a substantial part of uh, clinical work in the hospital departments, in a spine center, but also in other departments that see different kinds of musculoskeletal pain patients. Well, that's terrific. I, I appreciate you telling us about the program. Can you also tell us about your practice as a chiropractor? Yeah, I actually only did one year full-time in, uh, in clinical work. I had one year in private practice, and it was not that I didn't enjoy it. I just also was curious about other things. And then later, when I had finished my PhD, I have done most of my clinical work uh, alongside being a researcher. I have had some years with half-time clinical work in a hospital department. And I like really that kind of clinical work where I uh, worked in a multidisciplinary team and with quite complex patient cases, patients that for some reason didn't benefit adequately from the care they had in primary care or needed some more uh, diagnostic or some planning towards return to work or things like that. And part of that clinical job was also to supervise students, chiropractic students in the clinic. So um, that was really there were many different tasks to being a chiropractor in a hospital department. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. So are you still in practice today? No, actually I haven't been in practice for seven years now. Um, at some point it got simply too many hours for one calendar to be in two jobs. And <laughs> yeah. I prioritized to to spend my time and concentrate on on the academic work 
Well, we certainly appreciate all the great work that you're doing. So what was it that got you interested during that first year in private practice about pursuing an academic degree? I guess that like probably most clinicians, you just have questions every day and really no, not much time to dig into them. So I think there was some curiosity about it or some wish to try to focus on some of, of the, all these questions that popped up when you were a new clinician, but also that I simply missed the academic environment. I felt there was still so much more to learn from the university and wanted to see what academic work was about. You know, in the last year of my of, of the program, doing my master thesis, trying just get, getting a taste of what it is to do research. I really enjoyed that. So it was not that there was one particular research question that I really wanted to to work with, but more to uh, to work in in academics. Also, from the beginning, I was not that I'm not certain that it was actually to pursue a PhD. I'm not even sure I was very clear about what that is. Um, so I was more generally curious about research and lucky enough to then get a, a position first as a research assistant and then get into a PhD uh, program. Oh, that's excellent. It sounds like you really enjoy the, the process of research. Yeah, Absolutely. I, I, as I said, I, I like clinical work, and sometimes I think, oh, it would be good to just get back and have some of the immediate feedback from patients and the feeling that you actually make a difference from day to day, which is absolutely not always the case in research. Um, but, but I enjoy the position. I feel very lucky that I can have a position uh, in academics now. That's great. Well, like I said, uh, clinicians around the world are certainly taking advantage of all the information that you are providing us. So we, we appreciate that. Um, now, you've published in a range of excellent journals, including the Lancet, uh, European Spine Journal, Spine Journal, Journal of Orthopedics and Sports Physical Therapy, Spine, and so many others. We've got a fairly busy agenda for this interview. So I'd like to dive in. And the the topic I think that many people want to know more about is the series of papers that were published in The Lancet here recently in, in March of 2018. Um, you were on the, uh, the panel uh, that, uh, of authors that put together these papers. Could you tell us uh, how these papers came about uh, and then if you could describe some of the main findings, that would be terrific. Sure. Um, it's actually been underway for, I think, four years before it was published because it's been really a, a big job for the group behind this. It was initiated by a group of international back pain researchers who are engaged with a conference called the Back Pain and Neck Pain Forum. And... That group, um, led by Rochelle Bookbender from Melbourne in Australia, they decided that 
after back pain had been recognized as a leading cause of disability globally um, and as a rapidly increasing problem that decision payers will uh, decision makers really didn't pay much attention to that there was just a need for putting back pain on the agenda and this series was then very much inspired by other Lancet series and particularly a series on physical activity uh, so the group got in contact with Lancet and they were interested in putting up this series and I was lucky enough to be invited to to the group of authors writing uh, these papers, which have been really a very good uh, learning experience, a very interesting process to be part of. Hmm. That's amazing. Uh, and such a high-profile series of papers, the social media is still talking about these papers, and I'm sure we'll talk about these papers for many, many years to come. Uh, the not only social media, but just media in general, TV, and uh, it's getting a ton of press. So can you tell us why is it getting so much press? What What is it about these papers that is really, or really has the capability of making a big difference? I think first of all, the Lancet paper really points to the fact and provides the fact that back brain pain is a huge problem that needs attention. It's a huge burden on people who suffer from severe and persistent back pain, and it's really, really a societal problem too. And I think it's getting recognized that the way we manage as society, as clinicians, as populations, back pain is, is just not sustainable. It's an increasing pro problem all over the world. And we see that, that low-income and middle-income countries, they are adapting some of the same approaches to back pain that we have tried out in high-income countries and really failed on. So these papers, they describe how low back pain is and extremely common, and based on the global burden of disease studies, the number one cause of disability worldwide. So I think that from being a condition that had been neglected, ignored, like, yeah, back pain, we all have a sore back now and then, it's really getting uh, some of the uh, awareness that it uh, it should have because it is a, an increasing problem. It's been so rapidly increasing uh, in the sense that more and more people live with uh, back pain related disability. In the papers it's uh, estimated that the years lived with this disability globally has increased by more than 50% between 1990 and 2015. So that's really not a very long period, and it's an extreme race in the years lived with disability from one disorder. So the burden of low back pain is one thing that's really emphasized by these papers. The, an important point to, 
to remember in, in relation to that is that back pain is burdensome to those, really, really burdensome to those who have persistent severe pain. And it's a huge burden on societies. But at the same time, back pain is also really just a very common symptom that to most people are not a disabling condition or a problem that needs treatment. So we should also remember, as we speak about this as burdensome, that really the common back pain should not be talked into a severe condition. If we do that, we, we would add to the problem. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and I couldn't help but just try to think about these lower income countries. And it sounded like they're trying to import some of the failed uh, treatments that we've used in some of the higher income countries. Does yeah. that mean that they're incorporating things like uh, surgery, you know, fairly soon after episodes of back pain? Or w what would that look like in these low income countries? I think that we might need to talk about that, that another important point in, in the pa papers is that the model of care or the approach to back pain in high-income countries really results in many people getting the wrong care. Um, so we see that this problem is increasing also in high-income countries at the same time as we have develop increasingly fancy diagnostic procedures offered more and more money on treatment. So it's quite obvious that we do something that is not really effective. Um, and way too many people have things like you mentioned, like surgery and imaging that don't really help them to solve their problem. Way too many are prescribed opioids that they have harmful effects from and and the surgery that there's just much too little evidence to support to do such a potential uh, harmful or and at least expensive procedure so so we do so many of the things that there are no evidence to support that people benefit from and at the same time, we don't do a lot of what is recommended that are more simple, cheap, effective uh, care pathways where people are informed, are educated about the back pain, are supported to do self-management. Um, and I think it's understandable that low-income countries, they look to look to us, say, say, say all these fancy equipment as we start getting, having the opportunity to afford uh, MRI scanners, uh, surgical procedures, injections, whatever, all that fancy stuff, we, we need it as soon as we can afford it. Um, and it, it would just be so sad if, if, Countries that haven't adopted that yet will waste money, uh, resources on these uh, approaches that haven't solved the problem at all. Yeah, it's just so, amazing how amazing how we've spent a lot of money on back pain, and yet 
all of the evidence, or let's say a good chunk of the evidence is supporting things that don't cost very much. Yeah. And what we also point to is that it is, it's not, it's not only that uh, these uh, these treatments are that the harmful treatments or the expensive treatments are used a lot. It really seems that many uh, healthcare systems they they do not support another solution. It is as in Denmark, for example, it is, and I think that's the case in many places. It's for an individual. It is much more expensive to go and have. Uh, supervised exercises, manual therapy, uh, detailed information, education about your, your condition, you have to pay that pretty much out of pocket. But in Denmark, you can be referred to MRI scans, to injections, to surgery. If that is needed, if that's what you get, you don't have to pay it on your own. So there are systems that really support that people who have low resources themselves, they are not offered the kind of care that all clinical guidelines recommend uh, that they should. Wow, I, I didn't know that about Denmark. It seems like it, it's reversed of where it should be. Yeah, uh, it, it is. We, we're very fortunate that we have a healthcare system where we have a lot of um, free uh, treatments, free investigations, free hospital visits. But when it comes to back pain, if you are a general practitioner that are to recommend a patient something and you would think this patient would really need some patient education, some supervised exercises, some manual therapy, you can look at her and say, hmm, I just know that it would not be realistic at all for this patient to pay this herself. And the free options are not really easily available, um, whereas, yeah, as I said, every kind of hospital care and if you go for more fancy procedures, that will be free, not to society, but to the patient. So I could think that if you would sometimes be in the situation where you, you have to do something and you might think you know, we could start with a scan because that's what's really possible in this moment. Uh, and it's just so frustrating that um, that the healthcare systems don't support what would be best to patients. And what I also feel really convinced would be the cheapest solution to society. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and I think these Lancet papers... I mean, that was the big thing I, I got out of it, um, was exactly what you've been talking about for the last few minutes. So, well, why don't we get into these first-line therapy recommendations? Because uh, that that seems to be the, the thrust of, of where we need to go, and, and that seems to be what chiropractors do best, in my opinion. Um, so the first-line therapy recommendations from The Lancet are to include advice to remain active, education, exercise, and in some cases, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, now, looking at the list, it seems to me that only one of them, the cognitive behavioral therapy, at least here in North America, would 
be the one requiring to uh, see a licensed healthcare care professional. Um, certainly advice to stay active and education exercise could be provided by um, health professionals. But I'm wondering, based upon uh, the reports, how do you see the need for diagnosis in in the care of people with back pain? How, how do you see the recommendations being carried out in the future? Are they going to be triaged by some healthcare provider? Are they going to end up seeing exercise people first? Uh, just, just curious. I know it's a, a lot of points to that question. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I think a lot of the points are really also um, part of what we had to say in the papers that it's really poorly in many places, pathways for back pain are really poorly defined. And it's also hard to say at this point what would be the most effective care pathways because we haven't that strong evidence for different types of care pathways. However, there are some um, promising um, attempts, for example, with stratification of care. So, um, so, for example, the Start Back uh, trial that showed that when people were stratified into those who were in very low risk of uh, persistent disability, those in medium risk and those in high risk, it was possible to, um, to align treatment better with patients' needs so that people who, didn't, who don't need a lot of treatment, they would have just simple advice, and those who need more, they got more. And the really interesting thing is that the people who got just advice, who were the low-risk people, they didn't have, they had a good, as good outcomes as they did before with more care, but at lower costs. And in the other end, those who have a need for more care, they also had more benefits from having a um, a care that was more structured to the problems. Uh, and in Denmark, it's also we have also seen that cost could be reduced without um, reducing or, or without having uh, less good outcomes for people. Uh, when general practitioners were advised about implementation of clinical guidelines and also about uh, stratification to care. Um, so I, I think there are some promise that we could develop a, a effective care pathways. Um, and I think that no matter what that would look like, it's, there's no doubt that there's a need for well-educated healthcare profession, professionals. Um, and I think that clinicians of all kinds who demonstrate that they are willing to play an active part in implementing this evidence-based care, they are really needed. And to some extent, I actually think that some of the recommended approaches to back pain put large demands on clinicians and maybe even larger than on some of the care that we traditionally have been using a lot. Because as a clinician that are to support people's self-management, are to help 
people with persistent back pain, with complex back pain, you really need to understand the complexity of pain. You need to understand the structural element as well as the cognitive and emotional parts. And you have to be able to communicate this in a way that makes sense to people in order to help them. So with pharmacological treatments, losing ground as first-line care and care for persistent back pain no longer being about opioids, injection, surgery, we really have a need for well-educated clinicians such as chiropractors and physiotherapists. And I'm sure they, um, we will have a, a large role in implementing uh, evidence-based care. Um, when we talk about pathways, it's also really important to get back to the point that not all people with back pain should be considered patients. We see that we know that many people, around half of those reporting back pain, they don't report care seeking. Many people, they do fine with the back pain without a healthcare provider. So we should put up systems where people in need, they get the right treatments and people who can manage themselves, they um, we shouldn't uh, start treating those people. Many do fine with exercises on their own or in the gym. But the challenge is to ensure that those who really need support, they also get it from a healthcare professional that, uh, that are able to deliver the evidence-based uh, options. Mm, very well said. Now, as you pointed to, chiropractors and, and physiotherapists are clearly uh, interested, at least uh, from what I've seen, in the use of active non-pharmacological treatments that support the self-management what might these interventions look like um, and how could the chiropractor implement these and as an example i know that you're working on an implement implementation project so maybe you can speak to that as well sure um i think that active care and self-management support can be delivered in many ways and that will depend on the patient's need and your clinical setup, the way you prefer to work and to communicate. But the, sim the central issue is to support patients in a way so that they are able to navigate with their condition. Um, we should help people make sense of their pain and feel in control. Uh, we know that if people experience that they can do something that positively affects their pain or they can understand their pain, that's really important for their quality of life. With the, we know with back pain that really many people, they have uh, back pain that goes on that are persistent, not necessarily persistent and severe always, but have some back pain over really long periods of time. And very many people also have back pain that come and go. So back pain is something that people really need to have to, to live with to some extent. And it's so important because you, you do manage your back pain most of the time without your clinician. So it's really important that we, the time we spend with people as clinicians, that we do that in a way that uh, help them um, 
dealing with their condition the rest of the time. In the project that I work with, it's called the GLAD Backprop Project, we um, explore the use of group-based patient education and supervised exercise therapy in chiropractic and physiotherapy clinics. I think some people listening to this might have heard of the GLAD project for people with knee and hip pain. It's now in Denmark, in Canada, and Australia, and China. And this is a model with patient education supervised exercises where the implementation is uh, focused around a, a quite simple uh, two-day course for clinicians. So it's really for healthcare providers who already know how to manage people with musculoskeletal pain. And then we update them on a two-day course and introduce them to this um, intervention. And the back intervention is two hours of patient education and eight weeks of supervised exercises. And the clinicians, they participate in this two-day course and then they have materials that they can use in the clinics. They have PowerPoints for patient education. They have a manuscript that follows with the PowerPoints. They have exercise programs or things as a ready-to-use package so they can pretty much go directly back from the course and start delivering this intervention. The patient education has some key messages that will explain, it tries to explain how pain is a result of signals from your back and that these signals are translated in the brain and this translation is affected by a lot of factors and factors other than just what is going on in the back. So we try to explain, try to talk about the need for balancing your demands, and that's both patients' physical and mental demands with their capacity. And capacity is also both uh, physical capacity, their knowledge, the coping strategies, um, so that we try to help people get some insights in what are the triggers of my back pain, what are the reasons that my back pain is sometimes severe and sometimes less severe. Um, and patients, they report back that, they, that it's important to them that they better understand their back and they say things like, it's really important to me, now I know what's wrong, now I know what's causing the pain. And that is not because we have given them a structural explanation, giving them a specific uh, diagnosis. It's because we have helped them understand the the mechanisms in their um, what in in their pain modulation more or less. Um, the exercises that comes with the program that is really very standard, ordinary back, abdomen, leg exercises, but what might be different from what many clinicians are used to is that we have a lot of uh, emphasis on how the exercises are guided, how you supervise exercise. So we really try to integrate the patient education into the exercise session. So 
for example, by accepting some pain provocation and by having patients exploring different ways of doing exercises instead of telling them that there's one correct way. I think that we have been correcting patients too much with the best intentions. We really, really want them to, we want to help them, to support them, to guide them, to teach them what to do, but it might not leave them feeling empowered because if there are too many restrictions on how to do an exercise, what you can do, what you shouldn't do, you get nervous that you do something wrong. So in this exercise approach, we really try to say to people, try in different ways. Could you do that differently? How does that feel? Does that feel better to you? Could you do it more slowly, more quickly? Could you... Yeah, exploring that the body is able to move in many different ways. Um, and the thinking is that it doesn't make much sense really to tell people that pain isn't dangerous, pain is not a sign of tissue damage, damage and then next tell them to stop an exercise if it provokes pain. It's, it's really not helpful for helping people making sense of pain. So we try to stress that the spine likes to move and it's a strong structure. And we try to reinforce that by saying that you can do exercises in many ways. It's not, it's not that the spine can only cope with a movement that is very symmetric or one that is performed with a very straight back or with a very aligned pelvis. So I don't think that that all that, that nicely aligned and correctly done exercises, there's nothing wrong with that. And a lot of people enjoy nicely performed exercise and then they benefit from it. I just think we should be very careful what kind of messages come with um, with the way we guide treat exercises. So so we so what might be new in, in the Gladback approach to exercising is this integration of the patient education with the delivering of exercises. Wow, that was uh, a lot of great points. I'm wondering, the clinicians that are listening to this probably are going to want to know, uh, where can they uh, take this two-day course, uh, especially the ones in the United States? It sounds like in Canada, there's a, a program um, not here in the United yes. States. Is that something that you're planning on having? Yeah, hopefully at some point. Um with the as it is now, it's the the program for hip and knee patients is in Canada, Australia, and China. Uh, the back pain uh, program just started in Denmark, so now we're just uh, getting experience with that, and we're doing some research on the um, course for clinicians. To what extent they actually find that beneficial, to what extent they're able to deliver this care package when they have been on the course, what kind of support that takes. Um, but we are also exploring, um, just piloting how this how this program might look in 
uh, in Canada. So at Alberta University, they are now translating the Glad Back program into English. Just uh, uh, that's one step to we have to do, and then they'll start piloting and see uh, how it might need some adaptions for their setting. And we are very interested in in doing collaborative work internationally, but we do have to work step by step. So I'm sure that I can't say by now that it will be in the States or when it will be in the States, but but I hope but I'm sure that there are many uh, ways to um, many courses, many programs where you can learn about patient education. Um, I just hear from clinicians that what they like about uh, this GLAD approach is that it's really not very complex to integrate in your clinic because it is made for um, it, it's really made practical that you have the stuff you need you have the materials for your patients you have some written suggestions on how you can um, expressions you could use during your exercise supervision instead of the ones you might have got into the habit of using and, and so on. Um, but I think that uh, I would advise clinicians to just look for for programs that are education that um, underlines uh, this integration of physical and cognitive approaches to back pain and, and learn from that. Fantastic. Well, given that low back pain is the leading cause of disability worldwide and doesn't receive nearly the kind of funding that other disorders do, like uh, cancer or cardiovascular disease, what do you see as some of the top research priorities when it comes to low back pain going forward? Actually, I really think that is a difficult question because we got just need so much research, there's so much work to do. So, but what I think working on the Lancet papers, one thing that we were really struck by is the lack of evidence from low and middle income countries. And um, simply describing the population burden in uh, globally, uh, who are affected, how does it impact on their lives, what are the kind of care available, how is it managed? What are people's beliefs? What are people's strategies? Um, we, we really need to understand what is, what's, what's the situation in low and middle income countries in order also to try to avoid that the burden will just rapidly in, uh, increase in, in those countries. Um, also, I think that all over the world, implementation research is highly needed. We now have a substantial amount of knowledge about managing back pain. We know that there are some unharmful, effective uh, treatments. There have been a lot of trials on manual therapy, on exercise therapy, um, and we see that people benefit from these interventions, but now it's time to understand how this knowledge can be used to a much larger extent than today. How do we make these uh, interventions available to people and how do they actually work when in clinical practice? 
there's a lot of diversity in clinical practice and we should understand more to what extent that affects the outcomes of patients. Uh, what it really is that are the effective parts of treatment also. So that kind of points into to the third thing that I could mention as, a, as one of the things I find important is that we still need to understand the mechanisms of disabling back pain better and we need to understand treatment effect mechanisms. So we see that we have quite small uh, specific effects of even of the best treatments we have, the specific effects are, are, are small. We see that it doesn't make really difference on average if we do one treatment approach or the other, if we do one exercise approach or the other. Uh, it, it's very much about the total consultation that people appears to benefit from, and I think we should understand more what is that about. So I think we need both to understand mechanisms from a pathoanatomical or biomechanical point of view, but also to how does beliefs, expectations, cognitions actually work on in relation to pain and disability? Are these things on the causal pathway to disability? And can we change negative beliefs and expectations, cognitions, so that people actually also have better outcomes. I think there's a lot in that field also to, to explore in studies for randomized trials, but, but randomized trials that ask clever questions and are powered to, to really answer those questions. Do one really large, well-carried-out, high-quality trial instead of doing uh, five that repeat what we have done and might be of a quality that really doesn't uh, help us answering questions. Great. Uh, that, that answered all my questions for that. That's terrific. So I get the sense Sorry, that... that a lot of priorities. So I'm, sure, I'm not sure I did so much prioritization, but it's really difficult because there's still so much we would like to learn. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I get the sense that if we look at the the Lancet papers and we put it in a chiropractic context, that going forward, we probably need to do more trials where we incorporate the, the cognitions, as you mentioned, the exercise, the chiropractic care, because at least my perception is that many chiropractors do those sorts of things and get really good results. And it's just difficult to do that in, in trials, uh, the, uh, for example, that have been done in the past or, uh, because they really haven't coupled a lot of these things in together. Is that kind of your sense as to where we need to go? I think at least, I think in, in that relation, we really need to understand, um, how these interventions are used in clinical practice and and how that works because I think we have quite some ch some trials on on the different interventions not so many combining them as they often are in in practice but but some uh, so I think if we could move that work and take it to the step where it moves into clinical practice where we explore what are the benefits of combinations and what are the uh, 
what are the dose needed, what are actually the effective elements of, of uh, what people get. Uh, yeah, I agree that that's where we also want to see, to, to look. And also how we optimize really first line basic uh, treatments. How do we optimize a, a simple educational intervention? I'm certain that a lot of patients are seen in, by familiar, fa family physicians, by chiropractors, by physiotherapists who actually only need to be in one visit, two visits. And the main part of that is that they need to be informed about what's going on and what can you expect. But we have really been interested in how do we do that uh, most optimal and how do we address um, to people's different needs and educational levels and all these things. So uh, there's so many um, there's so many good things going on in clinical practice, but a lot of that is really not very transparent we don't know so much about what's going on in clinical practice so i think also really just documenting what is happening uh, in denmark we're now doing a, a, a cohort study with um, uh, I, I, three or four thousand uh, four thousand patients will be in the cohort when it's finished where we simply follow people who visit chiropractors for back pain and we look at their outcomes, we look at who benefits, what kind of treatment do they have, when is it decided to do imaging, why is that decision made. Uh, so trying to, under to, to describe and understand practice, and I think that's also, um, also a priority, because as you say, a lot of good things, a lot of recommended care, it's offered, it's just not very well described, and it's offered in a lot of different variations and we don't know if these variations matter or not right yeah well said well said um i know you wanted to discuss the uh, point that the biomedical or structural and or structural approach to back pain has failed and we need to implement a behavioral approach to back pain much more in practice what do you mean exactly when you say the biomedical or structural approach to back pain has failed? And what do you consider uh, are these kinds of approaches? What would they? What do they typically look like? Um, I'm not certain that I know I've used that expression. I'm not certain that a behavioral approach is the best word for an alternative model. But my point is that a model of care that focuses almost solely or focuses very much on structural explanations for pain, it doesn't work in back pain. We have tried that for many years and we still see this increasing burden of back pain. And I think we, in a traditional biomechanical approach, we have been taught to really emphasize the search for a structural or patroanatomical diagnosis not only as chiropractors, but generally in, in a biomedical uh, approach to diseases that we establish a diagnosis and that diagnosis should guide our, our choice of treatment and hopefully with the result of curing a disease or a disorder. But in back pain, even with 
the best treatments, we're not able to direct them as a, at a structural course. Um, and, with, and also, we're not really able to cure back pain. We have people who respond very, good, very well. They have very good outcomes of single episodes of back pain, but pain will return. They have relapses. Um, so I think this model leaves people frustrated and disappointed because when you thought you had a treatment directed at, at this diagnosis and your pain is back, at least to some patients, I think that means that maybe the diagnosis wasn't wrong or the treatment wasn't the right one to, to fix this problem. And they will look for another diagnosis or another approach and new treatment. And if we have started with the idea that there's something that can be found and fixed in the back, I think that have to uh, make people want for things like imaging. Um, so I, I, my point is that we, we need to help people understand that pain is not one-to-one -one what, what, with what is in their back. And I think we have to accept both as patients and as clinicians. And I think actually we find that a little hard sometimes that back pain is nothing that can be fixed by fixing the bio, uh, um, the, the structural or the biomechanical problems in the back. And then you're fixed. When we have fixed you, you can go back to your life. Getting back to your life is part of the treatment, an important part of the treatment. So uh, I, I think we have to, to try to come into models of care where we accept that there are um, problematic structures in people's back. They tend to give, give pain. Some people's backs tend to give a lot of pain, are very sensitive, sensitive to, to the demands that are put on them, sensitive because of different things. But, but that may not be what we can fix, but we can help people with the um, to cope with that and also to um, to use their backs in in ways that their back feels good with and to strengthen their back and to uh, to use activity as part of their um, getting back to to normal uh, engagement. So I just think that we have to come to terms with that back pain um, is not solely explained by a biomechanical or, or structural problem. And I actually don't doubt at all that clinicians try to integrate psychological and social factors a lot in back pain management because that's really not the biopsychosocial model is not at all new, but I just think that at least uh, with many of the many people I, I know and with my own education that we haven't been really well equipped to to find ways where we integrate these things in our care. We I know when I was a clinician, I really tried to ask about 
psychological things, social things, we ask about people's moods, we ask about work factors, but we might not be really trained very well in how to react to that information. So it's really not to blame clinician, it's, it's the entire model of uh, disease model that we are taught into, um, where that, that where we really we challenged by how by integrating uh, biological, psychological, cogn cognitive factors into our treatment. Mm, yes, um, <clears throat> that's uh, it's such uh, a difficult thing uh, to integrate. I think into practice, and I'm in my 21st year in practice now. And, and I find that I'm getting much better over the years, but there's so much information. And, and for example, the GLAD program that you have, I'm really excited because I want to take that for myself and then incorporate that into my practice. What are some, are there any explicit ways or educational courses or things that chiropractors could take to facilitate an understanding of the, the cognitive and psychosocial factors in their practice? I actually think that there are uh, increasingly um, courses uh, available uh, where people have really put an interest into understanding pain and understanding how we can communicate about pain. Uh, so I think it is to, to, to look for, uh, I don't think I can name courses, but, but I see that there's a lot of, of different uh, offers that goes in that direction. But I also think that, that it's really, part of it is also things that chiropractors may not need a lot it's always good to have more education and get some inspiration. But I also think that many clinicians, they are really able to work a lot with this. It's just that it really takes us to be aware of the importance of cognitions and, and be aware every day the kind of impact you have on patients' beliefs with everything we do and say. Um, it's quite powerful to be a clinician. People really trust in us. and. I think that it is easy to forget with your everyday practice that you, in every consultation, signal a lot of things to people, both with what you say and what you do. So I think even just trying to be aware of how much time in your consultation is spent on, on structural things and how much on understanding how the patient understands his back pain and what are his worries. Uh, is one way of just trying to get yourself focused, but also uh, try to think of what, if we reinforce our own uh, messages in the best way. Uh, we have sometimes discussed uh, here with, with the maintenance plans that uh, some people really... Uh, seem to benefit from having regular visits being supported in in their back pain care. But I think it's so important what happens in these visits. So things like if, if you have people coming back in on a uh, on a consultation and they're on a good track, they go they go to work, they've started 
doing the activities, doing fine. It's so important that we really say, see it as, as our clinicians to support that, to say, hey, you're really doing fine, well done, keep on the good work, let it be the patient's work, look at them moving, reinforce them in that everything I see is really, looks good to me. And then take the opportunity to not necessarily do a manual treatment if there was if if there was nothing really no really pain reason to do that. I think that it's really hard to communicate that everything is fine if you at the same time uh, have to do a treatment because you feel that as a chiropractor I can always find something that I would like to improve a little. To people, or at least to some, I think to many people, a treatment is something you get when for a disease, and at least you get it because something is wrong. So we, ha I know clinicians when we discuss it say, yeah, I just have really not thought about a mismatch between me saying everything is fine and we could still do it a little better with another manual treatment. So I think there are also these small adaptions to practice that people can do without necessarily having new courses, but it's always good, of course, to go and find new inspiration. Hmm, I like the way you said that, new inspiration. <laughs> Very good. Well, a goal of this podcast series is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. Can you offer any advice to aspiring chiropractors who might wish to become scientists? First of all, go for it. You will really need it. Um, and then, yeah, I, I try to contact people in good research environments. Uh, I, I really would strongly uh, recommend that you don't try to start research on your own or with unexperienced supervisors because research is a discipline that, that needs to be learned and if you really want to uh, to work with research it's so important to be in a good environment and it doesn't have to be an environment with chiropractors it has to be an environment that do the kind of research that you're interested in do musculoskeletal uh, research with good people and then I have, I think it's also important to consider um, what, what is it actually, what's driving this and are you willing to, to have a very different kind of work from what you know as a clinician. There's not the immediate response from patients, it's also a less um, secure uh, working pathway often often you will work as a researcher for many years with the uncertainty that comes with a contract for very few years at a time and at, for many i guess for most clinicians at, at a lower salary at least for, for quite many years in research but all that said if you're still motivated find people go and talk with people who do research Go to the associations, the chiropractic associations, ask them where the re do they have a research board, do they have contact to researchers, um, 
I know in Europe we have um, good uh, research support in the European Chiropractic uh, Association. Um, I don't know if that looks the same in the States, but, um, but, but try to find people who do the kind of research you're interested in, and uh, that could be a beginning of a fantastic job. Oh, thank you. And that's, uh, that's great advice for up and coming chiropractic researchers. So Dr. Kongstad, it's been, uh, it's been a real privilege to have you on the podcast. I appreciate all of your amazing insight and the discussion about the Lancet and, uh, the psychosocial aspects of care and, and what clinical trials might look like in the future in the profession. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. My pleasure as well. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Chiropractic Science with Dr. Alice Kongstead. We look forward to sharing more great interviews with you soon to come.